Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. After the apocalypse... A Pandemic Survival Story, Season 2, Episode 8, The King. The King's given name was Andre Bobet. No one called him that. No one had ever called him that. When he was a kid, his hard-drinking, white-trash father had called him Bubba. At least he had, as long as that miscreant loser was still living with him in the double-wide trailer. His was not the Hollywood version of family life. It was no leave-it-to-beaver experience, with Dad reading newspapers in his smoking jacket. There were no family dinners with Mom and Dad and their smiling 2.5 kiddos gathered around the mahogany dinner table. He remembered more nights going to bed hungry than he did meals with his mother. The better nights were when his father didn't come home, because that just meant a night of peace and quiet and going to sleep without fear. His listless and sickly mother had called him Angel, at least she had before she died of some sort of hemorrhage in the waiting room of the local charity clinic. He had been eight. There wasn't any family to take him in. The orphanage where he landed was called a school for boys, but it was as much a juvenile detention center as a school. The kids at the school for boys called him Andy to his face, but behind his back, they called him shrimp and other insults. And he came from nothing and had nothing. He had experienced a lot of hunger in his life, but that hunger did not make him weak. That hunger made him dangerous. The other kids soon learned that Andy was not to be crossed. No one ever tried to take advantage of him a second time. One big Bully of a kid learned this particularly well during a schoolyard fight when he found a pencil driven firmly into his neck. Messing with Andy was not a good idea. Andy had nothing that could be taken away, but what he did have was a powder keg of pride, a double-wide-sized chip on his shoulder, and he would rather die than submit to those who tried to make him tow society's line. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy that he would end up in the county jail. Before he was 20 years old, he had spent more time inside institutions than out. No one was surprised. To the civilized world, his path had been charted, and he was following it as expected. 
When he graduated to real jail, he was the youngest and smallest prisoner. He gave off an aura of bitter spite and cold anger that warned others away. The hardened men in orange jumpsuits didn't talk to him much, but when they did, he was Andy the Shank, for good reason. When the apocalypse hit, he was in the holding cell at the courthouse, waiting for the next judge in a long line of judges to pronounce him unfit for civilized society. It was chaos. The corrections officers were stressed, and the wheels of criminal justice quickly fell off the county wagon. At first, the officers were called out for emergency response. Then they began to get sick like everyone else. The lawyers and public defenders had no way to request a hearing, no way to free the prisoners, no way to move the wheels of justice along. Andy was stuck, marooned in a county court cell, waiting for whatever would happen next. Just like public transit and commercial shipping and the schools, everything shut down. The court system failed to operate. The judges and lawyers stayed home. Alive or dead, they weren't coming into the courthouse. On the third day, no one came to the building. Andy was the sole prisoner in the basement cell. As he waited, a cold reality began to settle in that this might be the end of the road for Andy Bobette. But Andy felt nothing. He'd been staring down death his whole life and never felt any fear. He felt rage. He felt wronged. He felt fury at the system that wouldn't give him a chance. But the one thing he never felt was fear. On the fourth day, a junior officer stumbled through the door into the empty holding area, his uniform shirt unbuttoned, his unshaven face drawn, and his eyes sunken. His white undershirt was stained, his breath was short and ragged like a man trying to breathe through a straw filled with coagulated mucus. That corrections officer stumbled over to the cell with his unholstered gun pointed at Andy. In his left hand, he held a key ring. The patch on his rumpled uniform coat said, Burke. Andy didn't move. He watched silently. He met the young guard stare with cold indifference. His eyes said, Go ahead, you prick. Do what you're gonna do, but you're not getting anything more from me. The young officer stood unsteadily in front of the cell with his service revolver leveled, and a raspy voice, liquid with virus, he spoke into Andy's defiant glare. It's all gone. He struggled for another breath. They're all gone. The officer steadied himself and stared at Andy's cold eyes. I may be dead, but does a piece of shit like you deserve to live? Andy looked at his fingernails as if bored. Officer Burke, I think it's against the law to shoot the prisoners, he said in a deadly, calm, disinterested voice. Officer Burke started to laugh, but gagged instead, struggling to form words through the blood in his mouth. Law, he spurted. I'm going to law now. The officer doubled over, racked with a coughing fit. Blood dribbled from his mouth. He slumped to a kneeling position on the floor. He struggled for breath. A liquid gurgling sound emanated from him. Officer Burke looked at the keys in his shaking hand. He looked at the gun. 
With apparent effort, he raised the gun and focused it in the direction of the prisoner in the cell. He squeezed off a shot that went over Andy's head. Andy didn't flinch. Andy smiled. The officer collapsed onto his face, wheezing pitifully. Peering through the bars, a broad smile rose fully across Andy's face. As he watched the officer drown in his own blood and sputum, Andy figured that God had just interceded in his life. This was a sign. It was his time. His entire life, a ruthless and oppressive society, never gave white trash like him a chance. He and his kind were always shoved to the bottom of the pile. The system was rigged. This plague was resetting the scales, the scales of justice, the scales of law. College degrees and fat bank accounts didn't protect you from the virus. Those at the bottom would rise to the top. Now was his world. Now was his time. What was it the pastor had said at the school for boys? The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. As he reached out to pull the keys from the dead hand of the officer, he realized that this new world was designed for him. He pulled the gun from dead officer Burke's grip. I'm the lone now, asshole, he thought. All those preachy bastards that had held him down had been brought low. He was in charge now. He would lead the way. He would become the avenging angel for his kind. This was his world now, and he was a king in it, or maybe even a god. Janet looked out of the loft window. The grills that divided up the glass into neat squares were old, rusted metal. One of the panes was replaced with a piece of cardboard from an old box held in place with curling duct tape. The glass was old and mottled with age. Even so, she could see the king's men with their guns camped out in the intersection below. They stood guard over the town. What were they on guard against, she couldn't tell. She had been using the old buildings along the river for shelter and cover since the bridge collapsed. She had seen the bridge fail and the bus topple into the water. What had happened to the old man, the dog, and the people on the bus? She was bothered by not being able to honor her commitment to the old man to help him find his son, Paul. The bridge was gone, yes, but if she could, she would still find a way to honor that promise. Right now, however, she had to figure out what to do about the king and his men. There looked to be four of them guarding the intersection below, greasy-looking thugs in denim and leather, not the kind of men you'd invite home to meet your parents. Maybe it was her they were on the lookout for. Maybe when she got close to the king out at the resort, it made him think. Maybe she had gotten the king's attention when K.J. and the old man had helped the bus full of women and children escape. Maybe it showed that the king was vulnerable. He didn't like that. She had sent him a message. The message was that there were others still out there, and he wasn't safe while they were still alive. 
Most people trapped and alone, hunted by killers, would be desperate and afraid. K.J. was not most people. K.J. saw this as an opportunity, a target-rich environment. She finally had those bastards in a place where she could take them out. K.J. thought about it. The world was at a critical point. The king and his men represented one possible future, a dark, twisted future of lawlessness where might made right and violence ruled. That went against everything she stood for. She had to fight for a different future, a future of decency and law. She couldn't take them on directly, but she could use their ego and their mindless brute force against them. Let them burn in hell where they belong, she thought and smiled grimly. The old building wasn't used as a mill anymore. The bottom floor had been subdivided into small businesses and shops. The second floor was miscellaneous offices, and this top floor seemed to be some sort of artist studio. It had sloping eaves that cut into the space, and it was cramped and jumbled. K.J. smelled oil, paint, and thinner in the cold air. It took her some searching around and some time to assemble what she needed. Some glass bottles, one of those big glass five-gallon carboys, some rags, the paint thinner from the studio to mix with denatured alcohol from the machine shop. Theoretically, that would do it. She didn't have experience in urban combat, but knew some of the basic applications. When she scouted the stairwell, it echoed slightly with her footfalls, even as she tried to move silently. It smelled of mildew, wet concrete, and piss. She stacked cardboard boxes and crumpled papers in the bottom of the stairwell, next to the steel door that led to the street. Then she prepared her hot surprise and made ready on the landing, two flights above. K.J. filled a carboy and balanced it on the edge. Finally, she was ready, ready to send another message to the king and all would-be tyrants and dictators. K.J. made her way back down the staircase and propped the metal door open to leave a path of retreat. She crept silently to the corner to where the king's men lolled around a truck with their guns. They were relaxed, leaning on the truck and talking, oblivious to the threat that was K.J. creeping up on them. Time to teach another lesson, she thought. Crouching behind a car for cover, about fifty feet from the men, she hefted a pop bottle in her hand, gauging the distance to the men. Pulling a lighter from her vest pocket, she lit one of her two firebombs and threw it over her head with all her might like a flaming grenade. The first Molotov cocktail fell well short, but made quite a display, spreading a bloom of flame and black smoke. The startled men dove for cover and frantically scanned the area for the source of the attack. The second bottle made it a bit further and sprayed the men's truck with flaming liquid, setting the tires alight. By now, the men were hiding behind another car, shooting randomly at the buildings around them. K.J. made her way under the cover of the smoke and chaos back to the corner of the building. She stood up briefly so that the men could see her and yelled, 
burn in hell before ducking back around the corner and sprinting for the mill's back door. The sound of gunfire and pursuit rose behind her. She risked a glance back as she entered the building. All four of the men were in pursuit around the corner behind her. They looked pissed. K.J. ducked into the stairwell and sprinted up the stairs to the top landing, taking the metal steps two at a time. She could hear the men shouting behind her as they crashed through the door in pursuit. K.J. already had the fuse lit. She pushed the five-gallon glass carboy off the top ledge and into the stairwell. It seemed to fall forever. The men were shouting below. There was a smash and an oxygen-sucking whoosh of hot air as the alcohol and paint thinner mixture exploded in the confined space of the stairwell. There were screams, horrifying screams of the men as they burned and died. K.J. had done her job too well. The stairwell acted like a chimney drawing the heat and fire up the exterior wall to the top story of the building. In just a few minutes, fire was raging throughout this end of the old mill. She had to get out of there. There was a sister stairwell at the opposite end of the building, closest to the river. She could get out of the burning building on that side and find another place to hide. Slamming the metal door behind her, she sprinted down the length of the building to the far stairwell and careened through the door. Just as she started down the stairs, she was met by the sound of more men coming up. Crap, she thought. This wasn't part of the plan. She was trapped between the fire and an oncoming gang of killers. Rock in a hard place, she thought. No, this was more like out of the frying pan and into the fire. She scrambled back inside the building and looked around frantically. Was there a place to hide? Was there a way to get past the men in the fire? Could she somehow fight her way out? She ran into a side office to find a place to hide. Smoke was beginning to curl up through the wainscoting. K.J. went to the window, forced the heavy latch open, and pushed with all her might. The twelve-pane, metal-framed window creaked open a few inches. Rusty flakes of paint fell to the floor. No one had opened that window in years. She grabbed a board from a pile in the corner and wedged it into the crack for leverage. The corroded old hinge creaked and groaned, but then broke free, leaving enough room for her to stick her head and shoulders out. Under the window, she could see a bit of a ledge. A row of decorative granite blocks had been mortared into the exterior wall, forming a small shelf. K.J. said a quick prayer, wiggled out through the window. She probably wouldn't die from the two-story fall, but she didn't want to test the theory. She managed to balance her toes on the granite sill and stretched her arm across the gap to the next window. Thank God she had stayed in shape. Her upper body strength allowed her to stretch from window to window until she could grab the cast-iron drain pipe at the corner of the building and climb down the coin stones like a ladder. One of his lieutenants rushed up to the king and said, Someone threw a couple of Molotov cocktails at the dogs, cooked three of them, and set that building on fire. The king thought about this. Whoever this was, they were getting creative. He couldn't let that happen. He needed to take the initiative and demonstrate control. They like fire? 
he said. Burn the whole place down, all of it. Spread the dogs around to make sure none of these rats escape. The king's men seemed to be everywhere. K.J. had to work hard to stay hidden, moving from one building to the next, staying out of sight and trying to keep one step ahead. They had set the whole side of the town ablaze. She was being inexorably driven towards the river, and she was running out of room. K.J. crouched in the dense vegetation by the river's edge and watched the ragged line of dirty men approaching. They had spotted her moving between buildings. There was nowhere to go now. She unzipped her jacket and pulled it off. She reached down and untied her boots and pulled them off as well. She reluctantly stripped off her combats and out her shirt. This was gonna suck, but it was the only option she had left, and she certainly wasn't gonna give these assholes the satisfaction of capturing her. K.J. felt the cold air on her arms and got ready to run. If she was going to die today, she was going to die on her own terms. The men were a hundred feet away and closing with their guns ready. K.J. hoped they were bad shots and exploded out of the bushes towards the river. In the ten hard, sprinting strides it took her to gain what was left of the old dock, she heard the surprise shouting and some shots. One, two, three more steps and she was airborne. The flames of the buildings haloed her from behind. Time slowed as she hung in the graceful arc of a dive. She hoped the water was deep enough here. The cold water exploded as she entered it. The impact in the cold water sucked the breath from her. Her whole body screamed in shock as she battled to control the cold and stay under for as long as she could. She felt the river pull her sideways as she dolphin kicked for all she was worth and tried to relax into this new pain. K.J. knew the most important thing was to control her mind and the panic reflex that the cold water induced. As a triathlete, she knew she could swim. She knew she could go the distance. That wasn't the challenge here. The challenge was not letting the cold get to her. She would have to tamp down the pain and work fast and hard enough to keep the blood flowing through her system. If she could work through the pain and keep moving, she could make it. To fight hypothermia, her autonomic nervous system would try to shut the blood flow away from her extremities. If she let the cold win, she would slowly lose the use of her arms and legs and drown. Horrifyingly, she had once heard someone say that it wasn't a bad way to die, like falling asleep. But she wasn't going to let that happen. After what seemed like an eternity underwater, but was probably less than 60 seconds, she kicked to the surface and took a tortured breath. She could hear the impact of bullets in the water around her. Now the real work started. It was less than 300 yards straight across the river, but the current was strong and there were rocks and boulders ahead. She had to make progress and avoid the cataract. K.J. tried to relax into the long, powerful stroke that had taken her back and forth a thousand times in the pool and across a 2.4 miles of the Iron Man swim. She lifted her head and sighted the opposite shore. She didn't bother looking back. It 
didn't matter now. All that mattered was a far shore and the cold, grim work it would take to get there. Lift one arm up and over, drive it into the water ahead of her, roll her body around that strong pull and kick hard with her legs. Shoot the other arm out into the glide and roll to breathe. And again, and again, and again, the cold water pulled at her consciousness and felt like a thousand freezing needles being driven through her skin. Her toes were numb. The pins and needles in her fingers made her hands feel like burning slabs of meat. But she was relaxed and calm in her work. Janet saw her mother's face back in the house as she lay dying. She drew strength from the image. She pushed the pain away, rolled again, sucked in a lungful of wet air, and stroked hard through the current forward, always forward. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, my survivor friends. Welcome back. How's the apocalypse going for you these days? Here we are, Friday night, getting an episode up. This was a long episode. 3,500 plus words. I thought about breaking it up into two episodes, but it seemed to hang together well enough, so... And it advances the story in the right direction. And I just listened to Robert's read especially at the beginning, his read of the King's backstory. Oh my God, it was terrifying. Great work, Robert. Really good work this week. So why does Janet care so much about what these bad guys are doing, right? Because she sees the bigger picture. She sees that this is one of those moments in the arc of time when direct action by a few individuals can determine or alter the broader outcome of that arc. And now that I'm thinking about it, it, this does have echoes of a classic science fiction device. How do you preserve the good parts of the old world for the future generations? So think Foundation or even A Canicle for Leibowitz, which I just read, uh, where the Catholic monks preserve relics of the past after a nuclear war. And by the way, Canticle for Leibowitz was a really good read. I liked it a lot. 
written by Walter M. Miller and first published in 1959. Walter M. Miller was part of that World War II generation, and he took part in the bombing of the Benedictine Abbey of Monte Cassino. And this uh, had apparently a, a real strong effect on him. So the book is a combination of three stories from the same universe that had originally been published in other sci-fi magazines, but he didn't just stick them together. He rewrote them into this novel. And you can see the cyclical nature of history through the stories, history repeating itself. And you can see the play of church versus state. And if you take it as a story, just take it on the surface as a story, it's a good story. Good characters, they're funny, it's thoughtful. But there's also a complexity baked into it. He uses wordplay and alliteration and snippets of the Latin mass to make subtle points. And it felt almost like a sci-fi version of James Joyce. You can sense the very real struggle of this deeply Catholic author trying to find some sympathy for the broken mess that is humankind, that, that tension. And with that, I know I said I'd keep it short, but now I have to tell my James Joyce story. I used to think this story maybe sounds smart and erudite, but now I realize it just makes me sound like a man with no friends and rumpled clothes who smells a little bit like cheese. You know, that guy. Anyhow, so with any story, you have to start with the narrator's exposition. Set the context. Now, I have three degrees. I have a business degree, an engineering degree, and a minor degree in English. The minor degree in English comes from when I was an undergraduate, and I had the fleeting notion of becoming a journalism major until I realized that I'd have to starve. And then I switched to business. But in the process, I amassed enough credits for a minor degree in English because I loved it. I loved reading. I loved writing. So one semester, it was a summer semester, I signed up for some literature course where the title of and description of the course had no relation whatsoever to what the professor actually taught. And it turned out to be an entire summer semester course devoted to one book, James Joyce, Ulysses. Now, James Joyce was a troubled and brilliant Irish writer who wrote some fine literature. He also wrote two wholly impenetrable magnus opuses, Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake. I never read Finnegan's Wake, but for this course, I had to read Ulysses. And Ulysses is this story of a day in the life of Leopold Bloom, a man in Dublin. And each chapter was written as a parallel to Homer's story of Ulysses. Each chapter was written from a different point of view and in a different style. There's lots of Latin and Gaelic. Uh, ended up being banned in Boston when it came out in the 1920s. And if you meet someone who says they have read Ulysses, they're lying. I'm telling you, they're lying. I had to procure cliff notes and an entirely separate book that explained the primary book just to pass the course. So I am that rare person. I have read James Joyce Ulysses. 
and I still have that copy from college on a bookshelf downstairs. It's the reading equivalent of having scaled Mount Everest. That's my James Joyce story. Now, I suppose what I learned from it was the heights to which writing can be taken, the technical skill that a brilliant writer can engineer works of fiction with. And so I hear echoes of that conflict between the church and the art in Canical for Leibowitz. Returning across the Rubicon to reality, we've got 69 members now in our Facebook group, and it's an interesting demographic. Our friend Carlos, Carlos the Jackal, he asked a question about what your list of items would be that you would bring with you into the apocalypse. And I said ripe avocados because it's really hard to find a good ripe avocado in the apocalypse. And we have passed 48,000 downloads and are clipping along nicely at eh, 10,500 or so downloads a month. A lot of new folks are getting to us from Audible. And I don't have an Audible membership. I've never talked to Audible, but I assume there's a way to rate and review. So you folks who are on Audible, you go ahead and rate and review the podcast on your app there. I appreciate that. And anybody else who can forward it to their friends, be part of our our tribe, help us along. That'll be great. I won't keep you any longer. I'll let you get back to hoarding ammo and gathering avocados for the apocalypse. So until next time, keep surviving. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.